We come now, uh, this Palm Sunday, to the end of our series in Genesis, chapter, uh, in Genesis and following the life of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 25, Abraham dies and will be buried. In this chapter, the first 11 verses of it, when Abraham dies, his sons will find, will bury him in a cave and they will be subsequently blessed by their uh, father but, but, and by God through him. The end of Abraham's life, as we've seen over the last several weeks, uh, his whole life play out before us. Now at the end, the end of his life demonstrates not only that Abraham finishes, finishes his life in faith, he, he finishes his life well, he finishes strong, but that God finishes in Abraham's life exceedingly well the work that he began with Abraham. I've titled the sermon this morning, Finishing Well. I think all of us want to, in life, finish well. We mentioned before the Masters is going on today. And last I checked, Tiger Woods was one shot off the lead. And if he won, this would be his fifth Masters win. Tiger wants to finish well today. This is the last day of the tournament. He wants to finish with a good score, beat out Francesco Molinari, who nobody really likes anyway, right? <laughs> I'm not a big Tiger fan, but I'm not a Molinari fan. Finishing well is important, not just in sports, but in, in life. Finishing well is 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 part of who we are called to be and what we're called to do as, as Christians. But we don't finish well by just giving a good effort in the end. We finish well by finishing in faith like Abraham has. Let us see this morning three different things related to finishing well, what it is not and what it is. Before we do that, will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 11. We read last week about the uh, marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. And in verse, the end of verse 67 of chapter 24, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, Sarah. And chapter 25 begins that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Asherim, Letishim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beir Lahai Roy. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Finishing well your life of faith, something that Abraham displays for us, illustrates for us. And there are at least three things uh, about finishing well in faith that we see in our text this morning and that I want us to, to gain and to learn from as we wrap up this study of the life of Abraham. First of all, finishing well is not defined by how much you have. Finishing well in life when you die 
Finishing well will not be defined by how much you have or even how much you leave behind. Do you remember how Abraham started his now century-long walk with God? He started with very little. God called him in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, to leave his home and his family and to sojourn, to travel as a foreigner in a land that he did not know among a strange people. And God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, three different things, land, offspring that would outnumber the stars and the sands of the seashore, and that third, all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. God promised Abraham land, offspring, and blessing. But what does Abraham have at the end of his life? What about the promise of land? He was promised the whole land of Canaan, all the land that that he would walk through during his, his time of sojourning. But the only land that Abraham owns at his death is a burial plot with a cave on it to hold his dead body. What about the promise of offspring? He was promised offspring that would outnumber the stars of the sky and the, the grains of sand on the seashores. But at his death, he has only eight sons, seven grandsons, and three great-grandsons. And among them, only one is the son of promise, through whom the blessing to the nations would come through. Speaking of which, what about that blessing to the nations that God promised Abraham, that all the families of the world would be blessed to him? He was promised that through him, every family of the earth would be blessed. But to this point in his life, Only Melchizedek and Abimelech, these two other foreign kings, have received anything from Abraham. To the naked eye, Abraham dies with very little. To the naked eye, to maybe the Western American eye, he finishes poorly. But through the eyes of faith, we find that Abraham is exceedingly rich. Remember that promise of land? That he would possess all the land of Canaan? Well, at his death, all that he has is a small burial plot, but he owns outright that land that he is buried on and that his son is his son. Isaac is is already making his dwelling in in the Negev, the, the same region where Abraham had journeyed. In some 400 years from Abraham's death, the people of Israel, his descendants will be delivered from slavery in Egypt. To inhabit the whole of Canaan as a possession from God himself. Through the eyes of faith at Abraham's death, it it seems like he has much more than just a burial plot. He's got a son who's making his home in the promised land. We look forward to uh, a people who will uh, uh, possess the whole land as they're brought out of slavery. But go a step further still and see that the offspring of Abraham, Jesus the Christ, who Paul says is the offspring of Abraham. Jesus will give his life and raise again on the third day to forgive the sins of all who trust in him so that he might bring them, so that he might bring you, Christian, not into the land of Canaan, but into a land of eternal blessing and peace and life in the very presence of God. Through the eyes of faith, the promise of land to Abraham is already becoming full with meaning. What about that promise of offspring? To the naked eye, it doesn't seem like Abraham has much. But to the eye of faith, through the eyes of faith, we see that when Abraham dies, having only a dozen and a half men to count as his progeny, uh, really only one of them, Isaac, being the recipient of Abraham's estate, he has one son to rest all of his hopes on. But Isaac, we know, will father Jacob. 
Jacob, whose name will be changed to Israel, will father 12 sons who will go into Egypt as a clan of 70, but come out of Egypt as an innumerable people. Through the promised offspring of Abraham, through Jesus, the Christ, billions of people, though, billions of people have been made sons of Abraham by faith in the same promise of God that he trusted, that Abraham trusted. By faith in Jesus, Abraham's children have outnumbered the stars that he could count in the sky. I have resisted for several weeks up to this point, singing the song, Father Abraham. (laughs) And I will resist one week more. What about the promise of blessing? When Abraham dies, he has physically and materially blessed a couple of other kings in his life. He's given gifts to other kings. But among his sons are Isaac, the father of Jacob and, and ultimately the people of Israel. Ishmael, who will be a father of 12 princes in his own right. Midian, you read that name, who will be father of the people east of Israel, among whom Moses would journey when he was sort of exiled from Egypt for a period of time. In this sense, Abraham is, even at his death, the father of sons who will become nations themselves. He is the father of many nations, as his name implies. But how much greater still through the eyes of faith do we see through Abraham's faith in the promise of God, the blessing of Christ to all, will who be, to all who will believe upon him. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And it is through Christ that the nations of the world are blessed with the gift of forgiveness of sin and salvation by faith in him and his substitutionary death in our place and resurrection from the dead. So that at the end of time, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we will see, as John uh, uh, was, was revealed by the Lord, a, mul- a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. To the naked eye, through the eyes of flesh, Abraham does not really finish all that well. But through the eyes of faith, through the lens of the gospel, Abraham, or I should say God through Abraham, finishes exceedingly well. And so we see that finishing well is not defined by how much you have at the end of your life, but finishing well is defined by what you hold to by faith in life and at the end of your life. Abraham did not see the fulfillment of all of those promises in his lifetime. Abraham didn't live to see Jesus, the Messiah, the promised offspring, be born and to die for sins and be raised again. But he held to that promise by faith, even not knowing how how God would work out all that he had promised to Abraham. Abraham still holds on to it by faith. And so in many ways, Abraham's faith, I think, is, is even greater than our own because he's believing God, not knowing how God is going to do what he has promised that he will do. But we believe in God, knowing what he has already done for us. Finishing well is defined by what you hold to by faith in life and at the end of your life. Abraham finishes exceedingly well. Finishing well is not defined by how much you have. And finishing well is not determined by how long you live. Finishing well in life is not determined by your lifespan. Verse 7 of Genesis 25 of our text today tells us that Abraham lived to be 175 years old. 
That is incredibly, it is unfathomably old by today's standards. And even by the standards of Abraham's own day, he would have been considered very old. Yet we know that the length of a person's life does not determine the quality of a person's life. If it did, then we would look to the many diet and exercise trends and see in them something to hope for. We would worship at the shrines of plastic surgery and devote our lives to pursuing those proverbial fountains of youth. Maybe even today our consciences convict us of, of doing just that, of, of trying to finish well by living long. Abraham finishes well in his life, not because of how long he lived, but because of how long he trusted. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. And he was 175 years old when he died. Abraham had to wait from 75 to 100. He had to wait 25 years for his son Isaac to be born, the son that God had promised. And he walked by faith for a hundred years, for a full century in the land of Canaan with only a burial plot to his name for a possession in the promised land. But yet through that whole time, through a hundred years, he never wavered in his trust in God. Finishing well is not determined by how long you live. Finishing well is determined by who you trust at the end, by who you trust at the end. This point was well illustrated for us last week in Abraham's final recorded words in Genesis. There in the first verses of Genesis 24, Abraham instructs his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac with full faith and confidence that God will provide in perfect measure and in his perfect timing uh, a wife for his son Isaac. And in the verses that follow, we find that servant reaping the benefits of God who is faithful to Abraham. God does exactly what Abraham has faith that he will do. God answers exactly the prayer of the servant to provide a wife for Isaac. Abraham finishes well, not because he lives for 175 years. He finishes well because he trusted God for 100 years of his life. But even there we find something else to consider. That finishing well by trusting God through faith in his son Jesus Christ is not determined even by how long you have been trusting him at the time you finish life. But simply that you are trusting him at the time you finish. Finishing well by faith does not mean living 85, 90, 100 years by faith. It means dying with full faith and trust in Jesus Christ who is Lord. In Luke chapter 23 Verses 39 through 43, we read these verses as Jesus has already been nailed to that cross and, and those who are surrounding him are mocking him and insulting him. Luke 23, verse 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanged with him railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then turning to Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. 
Finishing well is not determined by how long you live, but by who you trust at the end. The thief on the cross at the end of a life of crime and rebellion and of victimizing other people turns in repentance and faith to Jesus, trusting him as Lord and saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Finishing well is not about trusting Jesus for 100, 150, 175 years, however long the Lord gives you to live. Finishing well has, uh, has everything to do with just trusting Christ at the end. Let me say, though, this too. You do not know when the end is coming. We are not promised tomorrow. We're not even guaranteed the next hour of our lives. So... Begin finishing well at the end today by trusting Christ now if you have not already. Finishing well is not determined by how long we live, but by who we trust at the end. Third and finally, finishing well does not depend upon what you do in life. Finishing well does not depend upon your accomplishments, your resume, your reputation at the end of life. Abraham does a lot in his life. We've seen just a snapshot of this over the last many weeks, spending time in Genesis. Some of his life is rather embarrassing for the man, especially the two times that he lies about Sarah's identity, his wife leading to her capture by foreign kings. That's not a particularly bright spot in Abraham's life. Abraham also does some good things, though, right? We've seen him pray on behalf of Sodom that God might not destroy the city. We see Abraham blessing his nephew Lot uh, with, with a generous gesture of allowing him to choose any part of the land that he'd like to, to settle in. Abraham passes the test of offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. He blesses his son Isaac and he gives here in this chapter lavish gifts to the sons of his concubines, of his other wives. But Abraham's strong finish in life does not depend on any of the things that he has done, good or bad. His reputation in Genesis, as he ends his life, should should not be as one who has done a lot of good things. Rather, his strong finish depends upon what has been done for him. It's fairly easy to read Abraham's story and to mistake Abraham for the hero of his own life. But he isn't. Instead, we found week after week, chapter after chapter, that in Abraham's best moments and in his worst, it is God who is willing and working in Abraham to make him the father of promise and the exemplar of faith that he will be at the end of his life. Abraham is a righteous man and he dies a righteous man, but he is not righteous because of what he has done. Go back in your Bibles, will you, with me, to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This is now the second time that that God is reaffirming his promise of land and offspring and blessing to Abraham, promising that he'll do all that he told Abraham he would do. And Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 reads this, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham finished well, not because he was righteous, but because God declared him righteous. Abraham finishes well his life because of what God has done on his behalf, declaring him righteous because of his faith, because of his belief in God's promise. And so finishing well does not depend upon what you do in life. 
Finishing well does not depend upon what is written on your tombstone, what other people say about you. Finishing well in life depends upon what God says about you. The gospel of our sinful hearts, which is really no gospel at all, convinces, that, convinces us that if I do more good things than bad things in my life, I just might squeak my way into heaven. That's the gospel that all of us in our sin want to believe. That if I just do more good stuff than bad stuff, God will look on me with mercy. Well, let's ask Abraham this question. Did Abraham do more good things or more sinful things in his life? Do we even have enough evidence to really count? We're missing the first 75 years of Abraham's life. And the final 100 are recounted in just some 14 chapters of the Bible. Do we even have enough information to know if Abraham did, enough, did more good things than bad things in his life? Do we have enough information to determine whether Abraham's good deeds were good enough to overcome all of the sinful actions that he had committed? How can we even measure the qualitative goodness or badness of a thing? How do you know when a good deed is, is more good than a bad deed was bad? The truth, friends, is that we cannot know this of Abraham. We cannot know if he did more good things than bad things, more honorable things than dishonorable things. And we cannot know if the good things that he did were qualitatively better than the bad things that he did. And we can't know that about ourselves either. What we do know is that Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So even if you could count all your good deeds and all your bad deeds, and even if you could measure how good your good deeds were and how bad your bad deeds were to see if they even, you know, level out somewhere in the middle, or, or, or maybe your, your good deeds outweigh your, your bad deeds in some way or, 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 or sort in life, Scripture says this, you have still sinned. And you've still fallen short of the glory of God. So even if you could measure your qualitative goodness against your qualitative badness to find that over the course of your life you were more qualitatively good than you were bad, you're still a sinner and you're still not on par with the righteous standard of God himself. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. All of us are sinners fallen short of the glory of God. And what all of us deserve for our sin is death. But Romans 6.23 goes on to say, But the gift of God is salvation, eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What we deserve for all of our good deeds or bad deeds, all of it, what we deserve is death, is separation from God. But God in his love gives us something. He, he doesn't remit to us payment that we have earned, but he gives us freely eternal life. Forgiveness, justification, right? being declared holy as we place faith in Jesus, his son. He gives us something that we cannot earn for ourselves. That's the nature of a gift, isn't it? So the Bible shows us that on our own, we are not righteous, but sinful. Abraham on his own was not righteous, but sinful. And that in our own efforts, we cannot truly finish well. We cannot finish our lives in righteousness of our own efforts. What is true of us is that we are sinners in need of help. We are sinners who have fallen short of God's glory in need of his grace. 
We are those who have condemned ourselves to death and separation from God who are in need of rescue from the mess that we have made of our lives and our our horrible, grave situation. We need to be made righteous. Not to become righteous, but to be made righteous and to be right with God. And yet we cannot rely upon ourselves to make this happen. God must do something in our place. He must do something for us. And praise God, he has. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the descendant and offspring of Abraham, the the one that Abraham, though he could not see, was looking forward to by faith. Jesus, the son of God, God in flesh, to be the substitute for us, to die on the cross in our place, taking the whole wrath of God for our sin, his just and righteous wrath against our sin, taking it upon himself so that as he takes on our sin, he places upon us our righteous, his righteousness as we trust in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is the verse, it's called the Great Exchange, and we've seen it much over the last several weeks, but reads this way, For our sake God made him, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, took the place of wretched sinners on the cross. He gave the ability for us to be righteous even as he is. By placing faith in him and then Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day, proving his own righteousness, his own divinity, his own power over sin and death to be united to us in our faith in him forever. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, verses that are going to be very familiar to many of you say this, that it is by grace. That means it is by a free gift of God that you have been saved through faith through trusting, through believing, through resting your life on Jesus Christ. And this is not your own doing, Paul says. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Nothing that you have done to prove yourself to God, to to show yourself worthy to receive his grace. It's a gift that he gives you freely. Not a result of works so that no one may boast, so that God gets all of the glory. Finishing well in life is a matter of faith. Matter of faith in God who provides is a matter of faith in God who rescues us from sin. Finishing well is a matter of having faith in God who declares us to be righteous as we trust in him. Finishing well by faith in God whose promised and proven faithfulness then to us becomes the catalyst for our perseverance in following him. God who promised to be faithful to Abraham and who proved his faithfulness to Abraham that becomes the catalyst in Abraham's life to lead him to be so faithful to God, so obedient to God, even as to go so far as to offer his son as a sacrifice to God when God asks him to do it. We know that God does not, God does not collect on that test, right? He provides a substitute, a ram to die in the son's place. That God is not like the other gods. He doesn't want child sacrifice. He wants obedience. He wants faithfulness. Amen. So the promised and proven faithfulness of God becomes the catalyst. It's the, the kickstart to our own perseverance in following him. Because we know that he's been faithful. And knowing that God is faithful and seeing his proven faithfulness makes it easier to follow him by faith. So finish well. Finish well knowing that finish, finishing well does, does not... It is not defined by how much you have, but by who you, uh, but by where your faith is at the end. Finishing well is, is not determined by how long you live, but by who you are trusting. And that finishing well 
that finishing well is not, deter- is not determined by, uh, by what you've done in life, but by what God says about you. So I want to leave us with three final exhortations on finishing well in faith like Abraham. First of all, start today. Finish well today. Begin, begin today finishing your life with faith in God. We said before, none of us is promised tomorrow. None of us is, is promised that we'll even get home from church safely this morning. So start finishing well by faith in God today, right now. And this is really good news. This is the good news of, of the gospel of forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. This is good news to the one who has messed up a lot lately. Friend, you may have blown it doubly this week. You, you may be in, in the middle of a long pattern of running from God, of, of neglecting his calls to repentance and confession of sin and faith in Christ. You may be a Christian who has, who has for many, many years neglected your faith and, and been living on, on your own terms. Look, the good news of the gospel is that you can finish well beginning today. That so long as there is breath in your lungs and and blood coursing through your veins, you have opportunity to place faith in Jesus. To turn from your sin, to place faith in him, to trust him as the sacrifice for your sins. The one victoriously risen from the dead who has placed you in a right relationship with God. Finish well starting today. Friend, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I'm so glad you're here today. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you wonder whether you can be a Christian because you feel like you've, you've done so many things in your life that, that God cannot forgive, you've done so many qualitatively bad things that, that there is no good that can make up for them, let me just explode the lie that your sinful heart is telling you today. There is no sin that is so great that God in his grace cannot forgive. God wants you to finish well by faith in him. So start today. Trust Jesus, his son. And you don't have to get your life together before coming to faith in Christ. Place your faith in Christ and allow him to begin working his will and his way, his heart into you, changing you into the person who finishes well by faith like Abraham. Start today. Finish well, friends. Persevere. Persevere. If we were to do a, just kind of a Genesis to Revelation study of the people of God. In Israel, in the church, uh, even towards the end of time as John sees in Revelation, we will find that the constant call of God to his people is persevere, press on, keep going, don't give up, don't stop, keep walking, follow me, take up your cross, one more day, follow me, persevere. Finishing well happens by perseverance. And this is good news to the one who has had, and maybe a bit of a challenge to the one who has had much success lately. Like perhaps in your walk with Christ, things have been going very well for a while. 
right? You've been having regular daily time in God's word and in prayer. Your worship with the body of Christ on Sunday mornings has been particularly fruitful and helpful. You're enjoying the deep relationships uh, with other brothers and sisters in our body. Your time in Bible study in small groups and in Sunday school is just really enriching right now. You are maybe in the, the best place spiritually you have ever been in your whole life today. The news uh, that God has for us today about finishing well is that even when things are going really well, you still need to persevere. You still need to press on. You don't have time to give up. You don't have time to slack off. You don't have time to to take a rest. Persevere. Because things will get hard. That's the promise of scripture for all of us who follow Jesus, that challenges and trials will come. Some of them as by means of temptation from the world or even oppression or persecution from the world. And some of our trials, some of our testing are are even allowed by God to draw us into deeper faith in him. So if things are going really, really well for you in your faith, persevere all the same, all the more. Don't slack off. Don't neglect your following of Christ. Keep on going. Start today. Persevere. Third and finally, in all you do in your life from this day forward, pursue God's glory. You finish well starting today. You will finish well if you persevere in faith. And you will finish exceedingly well if God's glory is the supreme goal of your life. This is what we are made for. We are made in God's image by God himself that we might know him, love him, worship him. It's what we're made to do. To give him glory. To make him famous. And when we do what God has made us to do, we are living for our greatest God-given purpose. There's nothing more fulfilling than doing the thing for which you have been made. Yesterday, I spent the day with our students as they had their Disciple Now uh, kind of retreat all day yesterday. I'm still tired. But in the uh, uh, the first sort of breakout session that we had, Uh, yesterday morning. I don't remember specifically. We were talking about the prodigal son all week, but we got onto this discussion topic uh, with some of the the young men in our our kind of small group breakout about doing what we're made to do, worshiping God. And I use this analogy uh, of uh, different footwear for different kinds of sports. There's a reason that football players wear football cleats and not baseball cleats and certainly not basketball shoes. Because football cleats have been designed for a specific application to be used on a football field with certain kinds of feet movements and different kinds of and particular kinds of turf surfaces. There's a reason that that baseball cleats have have thin, flat metal spikes and football cleats have usually plastic or longer conical nubby shaped spikes because the movement of the athlete on the field is totally different. And one cleat will not suffice in, in, in another sports application. Take it even further. If you wear cleats on a basketball court, you're going to be slip sliding all over the place. You'll never be able to get your footing. And if you wear basketball shoes on a football field or a soccer pitch, depending on which kind of football you all prefer, you'll be slip sliding all over the field. Have you ever tried to play ultimate Frisbee in running shoes or basketball shoes? It's hilarious. I hope you have limber hamstrings. You will need them. 
There's a reason that particular shoes are made for specific purposes. And there's a reason why cleats work on grass and basketball shoes work on hardwood or on hard surfaces. Because that's what they were designed for. And when we mix up the purposes for which those kinds of footwear were made, we're headed for disaster. Friends, how much more when we use our lives to bring glory to ourselves or to other people or to worship relationships or money or a bank account? Or even a church building or a particular uh, definition of community. When we give our lives to bring worship, to give glory to things that are not God who created us to give him glory. We're on a fast track to blowing our spiritual hamstrings all over the place. Pursue God's glory in all that you do. If you want to finish well in life, start today. Persevere. Press on. Pursue God's glory because there's no greater purpose for living your life than to make glorious, to make famous all around the world and in every part of your life, the one who has made you to do just that. High school students, some of you are getting ready to graduate and go to college. College students, some of you are preparing to graduate and go on to the next chapter of your life. Maybe some of you to grad school or to a career. High school students, college students, don't waste your life on an education. Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't go to school. Go to school. If God has called you and gifted you and, and, and allowed you to pursue more education beyond high school or more education beyond a college degree, great. Do it. Do it to the glory of God. But don't waste your life just getting an education and looking for a job. Don't waste your life doing those things, pursuing those things above all else. You can go to school. You can get an education and you ought to. But do it to the glory of God. Look for ways to make God famous in the, in the way that you are growing in, in your, your knowledge and wisdom and experience of the world. You can go and, and pursue a particular career. That's fine. But in pursuing your career, don't pursue just a, a, a paycheck or personal advancement. Pursue God's glory. Make him famous among those that you work with. Leverage the gifts and abilities and opportunities that God has given you in life for the gospel, for leading other people to Jesus. Parents, grandparents, let us not waste our parenthood on just making, raising good kids who, kids who, who behave themselves well. Let us not waste the time that we have with our children in behavior modification. The best thing for my children is not that they grow up being well-behaved. The best thing for my children is that they grow up knowing and loving Jesus who gave his life for them and was raised from the dead to give them the promise of eternal life. The best thing for my children is to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love their neighbor as themselves, to take the gospel to every arena of life that they are in. Grandparents, that is the best thing for your grandchildren. So don't waste your parenting and don't waste your grandparenting. On things like making them to be well behaved. On things like spoiling them with candy and treats and cookies and then sending them home with mom and dad to deal with. Now I'm not saying don't help your children to be well behaved. Help them to learn how to function in society with a heart and with an attitude that reflects Jesus. Help them to behave properly. 
but don't seek their good behavior over their God-glorifying pursuit of life. Grandparents, it's okay to spoil your grandchildren, but don't spoil your grandchildren such that when they come to meet with you, what they look for most is making you happy and making you smile because then they get candy and oatmeal cream pies and fudge rounds. Let them, let them find joy in coming to hang out with grandma and grandpa or great-grandma and great-grandpa because they know that you are pursuing God's glory with all of your life and that you want nothing more for them than to do the same. Let us not waste our parenting and our grandparenting on just raising kids who behave well and spoiling our grandchildren. But let us raise them to pursue God's glory. Let us spoil them with the riches of the gospel. And I speak to many of you who are older and are either approaching retirement or recently retired or been retired for some time. Many of you are in this place in life where you're approaching the end of your working career or you have already gone through that transition. You're on the other side of it and maybe you're you're you feel like you're functioning well in retirement. Don't waste your retirement pursuing simply what you want to do. There is often this impulse within us. It's an American thing that we work hard for 25, 30, 40 years. We retire and then it's time to rest and do what I want to do. Now that I'm retired, I can go play golf every day. Dear retirees, do not waste your life on the golf course. I'm not saying don't golf. You can golf and enjoy golfing and you can golf to the glory of God. But don't waste your life on the golf course. Don't waste your retirement walking the links. There are far better things for you to do in the final days of your life, the final years of your life to bring even greater glory to God still than figuring out how to fix your slice. Don't waste your life on the golf course. Don't waste your life in whatever your retirement hobbies are. Keep pursuing Christ. Keep persevering in faith. Pursue God's glory. Not just in your own life, dear retirees. Not just in your own life, senior citizen. But pursue God's glory with the extra time that you have in retirement by helping others to see him as well. Can you imagine anything better to do at the end of your life? than to influence those who are not there yet to spend the best part of their life pursuing God? The, 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 the most energetic and, and maybe useful years of their life pursuing God's glory. You who have retired and have, are, are, are uh, approaching the end of your life, you have nothing better to teach my generation and those younger than me and the generation between me and between you. You have nothing better to teach us than that there is nothing better to live for than God's glory. And if you disagree with that, I'll pray for you. I will. I will. Because golf is fun. And spending time with our our grandchildren is, is fun. And having time to do what we feel we are free to do in our retirement is nice. It's 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 in some ways it's a good thing. And they aren't bad things to do and, and to be engaged in. But if those are the only things that we care about pursuing then we have missed God's call to make disciples all our life long. 
We have missed God's call to pursue his glory from the moment of our birth until the moment of our death and then into eternity because that's what we'll be doing there. Finish well. Start today. Persevere. Pursue God's glory knowing that, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Finishing well is not dependent upon what you do, but what God has done for you. It's not dependent upon what you want to do or what you will leave behind. It is dependent upon what God says of you now and will say say of you at your death and the legacy of faithfulness that he has demonstrated to all who will come after you as they observe your life. Finish well. Start today. Persevere. Pursue God's glory. Let us be counted among those who are faithful like Father Abraham. And his many sons. Let's pray.